0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast, this is U.S. Farm Report.
1: Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. One year after Russia invaded Ukraine, has it spurred a realignment of world trade?
2: I don't think any of us would have imagined that as the war started a year ago, that we would have record wheat
1: exports out of the Black Sea. So what's it like farming on the front lines in Ukraine? A first hand view of the turmoil from Howard G. Buffett, an emerging market
3: for soybean meal. And market share is about 60% and has been 60% during the last five or six years. Michelle Rook gives us
1: a first hand look at a market that has room to grow. And in John's world,
4: the longest conveyor belt in the world.
1: Now for the news, USDA taking a look ahead this week at the future of the ag economy, commodity markets, and trade this year at the annual Agricultural Outlook Forum. USDA is projecting 228 million total combined planted acres of corn, soybeans, and wheat. That's up 3% from last year. And as you can see, wheat plantings are forecast to hit 49.5 million, up nearly 3.8 million planted acres from last year. USDA also pointing to an uptick in the number of corn acres planted to 91 million. Chief Economist Seth Meyer says the expectation for more corn acres is from lower input prices along with current commodity prices.
5: The corn to bean price ratio still gives you a little bit of favor to corn relative to where we've been at in history, hence that 91 million acres of corn.
1: USDA is projecting soybean acres to hold steady, and while soybean export demand is forecast to fall in 2023, USDA does see a boost in biofuels. The agency's outlook forum showing a projected 8 percent growth in soybean oil used for biofuels up to 12.5 billion pounds. USDA also projecting China to remain the top export destination for all U.S. agricultural exports this year, with Mexico expected to remain in the number two spot, followed by Canada. (laughs) Hmm. <laughs> The EPA also getting ready for spring, updating its label in several states for the use of Dicamba. In Illinois, Indiana and Iowa, there's now a June 12th application cutoff date, along with a growth stage cutoff of v 4 for soybeans. In South Dakota, the application cutoff is June 20th. Growers and applicators must check the online version of the label within seven days before application in case there have been any recent state or federal level updates to the Dicamba product label. Despite the return of snow and cold this week, natural gas prices are continuing to fall right now, dropping more than 65 percent since mid-December. U.S. natural gas futures for March delivery falling below $2 per million BTUs this week for the first time since 2020. That's after hitting $8.37 last June. That's nearly a $6.50 sell-off. It marks a major reversal when shortage fears set prices to the highest level in 14 years. It's the result of a drop in demand for liquefied natural gas in the U.S., but also globally. Abnormally mild temperatures this winter have eroded energy demand, causing inventories to swell above usual levels and prices to plunge more than 70 percent since November. A much-delayed restart of the Freeport LNG terminal in Texas has also weighed on prices as it's shut down after a June explosion, curbed export demand. Man, and the market may have not reached bottom yet.
6: We're not seeing the big you know, 40, 50 cent moves anymore at this point. You know, it's just a grinding couple, three cents, maybe five, six cents here and there. Uh, and that just is against uh, natural gas's nature. So I don't know that we're going to stay here all that long when it turns. It's probably going to be a very volatile move. We just haven't seen signs of it yet.
1: Newsom suggests end users keep a close eye on the market because when it reverses, it will be a very volatile move and will happen extremely quickly. Brazil says it's temporarily halting exports of beef to China after detecting an atypical case of BSE. It was detected in the northern state of Para, Brazil, which is the world's largest beef exporter. Previously, it suspended exports to China for more than three months in 2021 because of an outbreak. The suspension could hurt Brazilian food producers, as China is their largest export market. Well, EPA says it's ordering Norfolk Southern to handle and pay for all cleanup associated with that massive train derailment in rural part of Ohio. Ohio Governor and EPA Administrator Michael Regan visiting East Palestine again earlier this week. The agency saying it will approve a work plan outlining all the necessary steps for cleanup and if the railroad fails to comply, it will take the steps to clean it up and bill Norfolk Southern for triple the cost. Over two weeks have passed since the train derailment, dumping toxic materials in the area near the border with Pennsylvania. It also prompted persistent environmental and health concerns from people and for animals in the area. Well, many viewers across the country are still digging out from that massive winter storm that caused power outages and other issues, but is another major storm on the way? We'll have a check of weather next. Winter weather and major heat in the South. Biggest stories this week. Meteorologist Chuck Heaver is with us this week.
7: All right, let's take a look at our drought monitor, get an update on that. We're pretty much where we were last week. We have, yeah, pretty much normal conditions off on the eastern side of the country. And then off to the west, we are still in a dry condition in the center part of the country. That never seems to change, exceptional drought. in uh, northern Texas over in Oklahoma and uh, Kansas. So there you go on the root zone. Of course, California's had a ton of rain. It's going to even get more, so that's not an issue. Most of the East Coast right now in terms of water moisture is good. And then the Mountain West, yeah, some dryness. The temperatures this week will be below normal out to the west, above normal off to the east. And then precipitation is going to be above normal for most of the country. We'll have a storm push across the country throughout the week, and that's going to lay down some heavier precipitation, especially in this zone here. And then, of course, the storms off in the California area. That is something else that happened at the end. Of the week. Okay, here's a jet stream on Sunday. This impulse is gonna move across the country here. Again, most of the cold air stays to the north, so up kind of North Minneapolis, of course you're gonna be in the cold, but most of the country is still gonna remain mild with this zonal pattern, which has been very consistent across the country. But this storm here in the end of the week is gonna work its way up and we could see a big storm push through on uh, Friday and Saturday through the Great Lakes, but we'll keep our eye on that. Here's the precipitation forecast that I mentioned. Region. That's an association with that storm. There's a storm again off to the West Coast. So in between, actually a pretty decent amount of precipitation for most of the country, except in the middle where we need it. Here's the snowfall estimates over in the Sierra Nevada range and out in the Mountain West. Lots of snow piling up there. And then, of course, across the Upper Great Lakes region, we'll see some snowfall as well. All right, let's talk about Monday. This is the storm I was talking. It's gonna bring a lot of precipitation to the center part of the country. And then on Wednesday, things go pretty tranquil, relatively middle part of the week, tranquility, which was okay. We have some precipitation off to the northeast and then along the California coast. And then Friday, the same drill, really most of the precipitation on the coast and that will continue. So that's it for weather. I'm gonna toss it back to Tyne.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Well, frost hit parts of Argentina this week, but was it enough to impact the size of the crop? Dan Bossi and Matt Bennett join us next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is sponsored by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator steel closing wheels, perfected in conventional, excels in no-till. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package.
1: Welcome back this weekend. Joining us for our marketing roundtables, Dan Bossy, as well as Matt Bennett. Dan, let's start off with South America. A lot of talk earlier in the week kind of fueled the soybean market, talking about frost in Argentina specifically and the impact it could have on that crop. But when you talk to your folks down in South America, did it do that much damage to the market overall?
2: Well, it didn't do that much damage to the crop. Uh, as we look at the uh, the amount of uh, circles that were, let's say, below 33 degrees, it was less than 2% of the area in Argentina. And talking to farmers down there, was a lot of cosmetic damage. So I think the market rallied on the perception that, indeed, there may have been some damage. Uh, we have all been trying to get our arms around how small as small is the Argentine crop, not because of the frost, but because of the drought. And so I think this just kind of piled onto that. Remember that supply-driven markets are always peaking when it seems like the supply is the lowest, and we may have seen that on Tuesday.
1: Yes, speaking of that, Matt, it's not like that momentum in the markets lasted that long. We saw that on Tuesday, uh, but a tough day when it comes to, to commodity prices, especially for grains and oil seeds on Thursday. So is this a mindset shift in the market, or what's driving it?
6: Well, I think a couple of things, you know, when you saw the soybean meal market kind of run out of steam, you know, as Dan said, uh, uh, I think folks want to kind of buy into this, but we weren't able to go ahead and and approach those highs that we saw last week. And I think whenever you weren't able to get above and beyond those, you just ran out of uh, out of buying interest, quite frankly. And so I think a few things are going on. Uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, but, you know, maybe people are starting to look at uh, balance sheets for for new crop. And it's something that I've talked about. I know Dan's talked about it a lot. Uh, but, you know, whenever you start looking, for instance, at corn, it's a different situation whenever you're talking about this current crop. If you do plant 91 or 2 million acres, you know, and Mother Nature actually cooperates, you're looking at a completely different balance sheet moving forward. And I think maybe that's going to start to be more of the discussion than maybe, uh, you know, your South American weather situation.
1: Well, speaking of new crop supplies, speaking of acreage, USDA holding its its Outlook Forum this week, a first look at acreage. But, Dan, it's not like it's survey-based, and so typically not a big market mover, but when you look at their first taste of acreage, really, that came out of Washington this week, what it, what is it telling you?
2: Well, it's telling us that farmers want to plant more corn. Uh, we did see corn acreage rise to 91 million. Soybeans held steady at 87. You know, we knew wheat already was going to be up because of the seedings number last January. But if I put corn, soybeans, wheat, and cotton together, I come up with about 238.9 million acres. Now, that's down from the 240.7 in the Outlook Conference from the year ahead. Where we think there can be some adjustments on these numbers is going to be soybeans. You know, this is the first year that USDA is offering a $10 an acre uh, payment, if you will, for double crop soybeans as far north as, let's say, southern Wisconsin, and southern Minnesota. And then you've got all these SRW wheat acreage uh, that could be, you know, uh, switched over to soybeans. So I think the soybean number could go up. I think corn is about right. But now it's all in the hands of Mother Nature. What is she going to give us for spring planting? This is probably a pretty good place to start, but it'll be tweaked as we go forward in months just due to Mother Nature.
1: Matt, what's agmarket.net's outlook when it comes to acreage?
6: You know, I haven't come up with an official estimate yet, but um, soybeans certainly been trying to do some work to buy acres. But at the same time, you got to ask yourself, what's the function of, for instance, fertilizer? I mean, if we're going to talk about swing acres, uh, you got to tip your cap of the fact that dry fertilizer and anhydrous ammonia uh, nitrogen sources have all cheapened up over the last few weeks here. And I do think there's been some folks looking at the ratio of you know how much corn they can sell uh, versus buying that fertilizer on those swing acres. So I think 91 is, is a fair number. It might even be a shade over that. But I agree with Dan that there's probably a little upside uh, movement uh, potential for uh, soybeans all winter long i've been using 91 and 88 and quite frankly i don't know that i'm too far away from those numbers i don't think you can get much above 180 combined so i think i'm pretty safe with where i'm at right now but again we haven't come up with our official estimate for the march uh, planning intentions just yet
1: dan some of these growers in areas like oklahoma kansas panhandle of texas they're saying they lost some wheat acres this week. Blowing wind, cover crops—you uh, know, decimated cover crops. Just some real challenges out there. So when you look at this wheat number, you know there were some arguments when USDA put out their initial acreage estimate, saying all of that wheat may not make it, uh, may not be harvested. It, should there be a big adjustment there by USDA?
2: Well, there'll be an adjustment, but we're not going to get it until the May crop report. That's when they do their first survey based of, of the U.S. wheat crops. So. We live what we live with today. We will get planting intentions on wheat, but what you're talking about, Tyne, is really harvested acreage, and that's all related to condition uh, ratings in the 1st of April. So conditions are down in the plains, which I imagine they will be based on data we've seen in prior months. I would imagine there'll be extra acres abandoned in the plains, but, you know, world wheat prices are now down to the lowest level in a year. So, you know, the Russians keep selling wheat, and that's kind of offsetting the bullishness, if you will, due to the plains dryness and drought that's still prevailing today.
1: Yeah, it's been a, a year since we saw Russia invade Ukraine. So talking about the realignment of world trade, we'll get into that. Plus a BSE case, a typical case detected in Brazil. What impact is that having on cattle prices? We'll talk about that coming up on U.S. Farm Report.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. Pioneer combines leading-edge R&D with rigorous local testing to create seed innovations proven to thrive in your fields. Pioneer. What's next happens here.
1: Fertilizer prices are falling this year, but why could a situation in Africa possibly change the trajectory of phosphates? That's John's World this week.
4: I was surfing through a science news website and found this photo. It's a kind of a bright shiny object for an engineer like me. These photos are of the Bukra mine and conveyor belt and they brought back a memory of touring a Moroccan phosphate mine and fertilizer plant with an ag group in 88. They were taken from a satellite and an astronaut's camera and they showed the longest conveyor belt system in the world about Sixty miles through Western Sahara, and that where they un, where they load onto ships in the ocean. Incidentally, the longest single conveyor is still over thirty miles in Australia. This man-made feature is visible from space with the naked eye due to the white trail from the phosphate dust. Western Sahara, which I thought was just a region name like the Great Plains, is a kind of country. The UN classifies the area as a non-self-governing territory. Whatever. It's basically an uninhabited desert whose emptiness prompted Morocco to help itself to the massive Boukra deposits, ignoring any disputed boundary lines. Morocco is already sitting on 75 to 85 percent of proven global phosphate reserves. Almost all the experts agree on this share, market share and number, but recoverable supply numbers are all over the place. I discovered financial advisors, whose business it is to encourage investors, tend to be more hysterical about future phosphate shortages and higher prices and profits than independent or government scientists. As a result, you can find projections of phosphate depletion running from 50 to 300 years. These numbers, however, are based on extraction using current technology. Maybe there is no fracking surprise for phosphate, but I suspect concerns about peak phosphate are overblown. reminds me of oil reserve debates in the 90s. Morocco is the largest rock phosphate exporter by far. Typically for developed countries, though, it is far from the largest phosphate fertilizer supplier. The Bukra conveyor demonstrates the problem. It was built by European countries who are under pressure now to terminate maintenance contracts to punish Morocco for seizing the mine area from the Western Sahara. This could shut down the conveyor. Regardless, roughly one-sixth of global phosphate rock production is carried on this belt at 2,000 tons per hour, so its shutdown would be noticed, or maybe not. The US has consistently vetoed sanctioning the Moroccan annexation of the Western Sahara at the UN because of the effect on fertilizer prices. Like many other ag inputs, the small number of suppliers exert considerable pricing power regardless of the actual supply numbers.
1: Thanks, John. And coming up in our Farm Journal report, Michelle Rook actually takes us to Morocco to see why the country is a growing destination for soybean meal. But first, in honor of FFA week, an ag program in Indiana helping instill lifelong skills, but also a passion for restoring tractors. That's in Tractor Tales, next.
4: Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week we're going to journey to Delphi, Indiana,
8: where some local high schoolers are working to preserve some cool family history. I have a 1944 Farmall H. It was my great grandpa's and then when my grandpa started farming, it was passed down. It's pretty much the last 40 years of its life ran small augers when we harvest. It's been in really good condition. Um, It's been kept in a barn until life, and I just finally got it pulled back out and I'm planning on restoring it. Here at Delphi, we have several ag powers and structures mechanics classes. Uh, We start our kids off uh, as freshmen as a mandatory welding course. For many of our students that are rural or farm kids, they kind of drift towards restoring tractors because of the facilities that we have. We have restored over 35 tractors in the last nine years in this shop. Unfortunately right now it does not run, which is why I had to pull it here, but uh, hopefully I can change that. I've taken the hood off and everything and I, when I cleaned it, and I didn't have it on when I cleaned it. I've purchased a new battery for it. I'm working on getting a gasket for the fuel sediment bowl, along with a few miscellaneous other parts, and hopefully I can get tires for it. Every one of our students is an FFA member, uh, but we also tie it in to, uh, with Titan Tire. Titan has been really good to us uh, and our students. Uh, for giving tires to those projects. Uh, Also through FFA we've been able to award some scholarships in the name of of kids going into ag mechanics after high school. Thanks to our ag program and Mr. Walker um, we can we have the technology we can restore tractors. My goal is to have it done by the time I think it's in March when we do our, or at least have it running and fully operational. Um, We have a drive your tractor to school day, and one of my friends who doesn't live on a farm really wants to drive it because I can drive one of our others. So it would be nice to have it done by early March or late February. It's just kind of sentimental value. Uh, it's kind of a link between like my ancestors and how, why I'm farming.
1: What a neat program. There's so many great FFA week stories, and we've been sharing those on our U.S. Farm Report Facebook page. Well, up next, Michelle Rupp takes us to Morocco, a country that could be a sea of opportunity for soy meats. She shows us why next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition.
1: At this week's USDA Outlook Forum, the agency forecasting a 25% increase in soybean processing capacity in the U.S. due to a push for green fuels like renewable diesel made from soybean oil. Meal will also be a product, and South Dakota soybean farmers are taking the lead in developing new export markets for it. Michelle Rook traveled with the group on a recent trade mission to
3: Morocco. With the expansion of soybean processing in the United States, farmers are looking for a home for the extra meal, and they're finding it here in Morocco. Morocco is a country of 37 million people, but its population is rapidly growing and will hit 46 million by 2025, which represents huge market potential for U.S. farmers.
1: Morocco is the fourth largest economy in Africa, In Africa, most of these areas are going to be emerging economies.
3: Morocco annually produces 3.5 million dairy and beef cattle, 21 million sheep and goats, but a whopping 413 million chickens and turkeys. Poultry accounts for 55% of consumption with a median income of only $3,300 a year. There is no pork production in Morocco. And red meat is expensive. So most Moroccan consume poultry on a regular basis. But with a rising middle class and urbanization rate, expanding protein production is the top government priority, with projected growth of 20% by 2025.
5: Most of that, almost all of that, is for the poultry industry in Morocco. They also have a growing dairy industry.
3: Production is predominantly farmers with just a few head and less than a hectare of land.
5: There are a a lot of backyard farms, small, very, very small farms, uh, poultry, sheep,
2: dairy.
3: Eighty-five percent of those are slaughtered and offered at local butcher shops. Moroccan is still a wet market for broilers and uh, Moroccan like apparently to consume fresh product not many frozen products. However, they are modernizing their production and processing.
0: The younger people have a a tendency to want to buy from supermarkets processed chicken
3: Companies like Elf Shahel, the largest feed producer in Morocco, are vertically integrated with their own farms and hatcheries. And we dish 1.2 million uh, chicks per week and uh, 1.2 million tons per year in feed meal. And that integration also includes chicken and turkey processing. Today we have. The biggest slaughterhouse in Morocco, I think also in Africa, with 6,000 pulps per hour for chicken. With the strong protein sector, Morocco is already one of the largest soybean meal customers for the U.S.
5: It's always in the top 10 of our soybean uh, importers from U.S.
3: It's usually around 400,000 tons. And market share is about 60 percent and has been 60 percent during the last five or six years. But there's room for more meal exports and it's key with more soybean plants crushing for oil for biofuels. So South Dakota farmers are leading efforts to expand the market.
5: When you have a surplus, it will be a surplus of soybean
4: meal because we're crushing for oil. You have to figure out a way to get rid of it. And so coming here, uh, having a presence gives us the opportunities to hopefully make some sales in the future.
3: Moroccan feed customers like U.S. soybean meal because it's more consistent than South American product.
4: The
2: soybean who comes from Argentina, sometimes they have some problem about cooking, about uh, digestibility, so we prefer to work with the U.S. Uh, soybean
3: meal. Shahel buys based on price and quality and prefers U.S. meal because of its high nutritional value. Uh, even if the price of uh, soybean meal of uh, USA is high, it's better to use it because with amino acid that you have. This represents a shift taking place in the global feed industry. And it's a big selling point for northern states like South Dakota that grow soybeans that are higher in essential amino acids.
2: In the past, protein has been uh, the, the bar that everybody had set. But really, proteins are made of... A, amino acids, and there are specific amino acids that are important to livestock and to human development, and S- South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa, and Nebraska have those.
3: Research shows essential amino acids are more digestible and help livestock and poultry gain more efficiently.
6: Extra protein is just ends up being waste, so the amino acid profile is truly what they're seeking, and we offer some of the very best amino acid profiles that there are.
3: Maku says they also watched the currency exchange and are relieved the U.S. dollars backed off 20-year highs to make imports more affordable. However, Babb says as the U.S. ramps up meal production, prices may be more attractive for countries like Morocco.
5: Larger production of meal will have a little bit lower price. You add in quality and sustainability, we've got to have a lot of good markets for that U.S. meal.
6: AS THEIR POPULATION GROWS, AS THEY BECOME MORE SUCCESSFUL, MORE PROFITABLE TO EAT MORE PROTEIN IN THEIR DIET, I THINK IT'S A GREAT OPPORTUNITY FOR OUR our U.S. PRODUCERS TO EXPORT uh, IN PARTICULAR SOYBEAN MEAL.
3: IN Morocco, AFRICA, I'M MICHELLE ROOK FOR U.S. FARM REPORT.
1: THANKS SO MUCH, MICHELLE, AND YOU CAN READ MORE ABOUT THAT DESTINATION AND THE OPPORTUNITY IT HAS FOR SOYBEAN MEAL ON AGWEB.COM. All right, up next, speaking of exports, we'll take a look. It's been a year since the invasion of Ukraine. How has world trade realigned, or has it? That is with our Marketing Roundtable, Stan Bossi and Matt Bennett next. Welcome back. Well, we just surpassed the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine. A lot of uncertainty a year ago, but now a year later, you know, thinking that there would be some opportunity for, for U.S. grains, matt have we seen that come to fruition i don't
6: think that it's been near the windfall of exports that we thought that it was going to be Uh, there's no doubt that uh, ukraine probably performed a little bit better than most expected but at the same time moving forward i'm not so sure that we can count on production out of that portion of the world uh, to be able to satisfy uh, some of the export demand that they've uh, uh, been able to unsurface over the last several years. So I think part of the reason that U.S. exports are gonna be down again is probably gonna be more of your uh, growing global uh, uh, demand uh, out of South America, for instance. Brazil continues to grow in, in their dominance, in my opinion. And I, I think that they're gonna leave uh, uh, probably the U.S. Uh, you know in second place, uh, not just this year, but moving forward.
1: Dan, I know you were one a year ago when we talked, saying you know this could be a realignment of world trade. We spoke to you in in December at Milk Business Conference, and you were talking about the impressive pace of wheat exports out of those areas. So as we set today, what type of changes have we seen, and how are they continuing to get some of these exports out?
2: You know, Ty, I, I don't think any of us would have imagined that as the war started a year ago that we would have record wheat exports out of the Black Sea. Now. Principally, it's a lot of Russia exporting 45 or 46 million tons. But I, one as an analyst, would not have thought that part of the world would have record exports of grain and wheat uh, in, a, in a time of war. Nonetheless, that's what's happened. And the Russians hit a very big crop. We can argue whether it was 92 or 102 million tons of wheat last year. But they are just spitting out wheat in every direction. And I don't see it changing, at least until we get into a new crop position of May. Then it all becomes a weather scenario. What are we going to get for weathered in the northern hemisphere? Is the EU gonna come back and help supplant some of those losses in Ukraine? But that's what the market will be watching. But here today, Russia's not missing a bid. And it's 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 a problem because world milling prices is now trading over Gulf corn. So we're gonna be losing some corn export demand just because of the cheapness of wheat.
1: Well, Matt, the grains are having trouble finding some bullish information later this week, but that is not the case for the cattle markets. When you look at this atypical case of BSE that was detected in Brazil, I mean, just another bullish factor that we saw cattle prices make new highs. You
6: know, I think uh, we didn't, as you said, we didn't necessarily need any more bullish information. Fundamentally speaking, this is just an extremely bullish setup. Uh, everyone has been talking about it for quite some time, and most people are leaning that direction. And so it, it certainly warrants a little bit of caution, but whenever you start talking about, for instance, uh, other folks not buying, particularly China, out of Brazil. Uh, whenever it comes to beef exports, I mean, bottom line from the U.S. standpoint is that you're in a tight situation. This is at the same time, you know, that we're seeing a little bit of healing up as far as the Western Corn Belt goes, and a lot of the forecasts are kind of calling for that to continue to be the case. And so, pastures should uh, be in better shape than what they were. I know some of the folks in that part of the world have shared with us that. Preliminarily, they're sure looking at uh, retaining heifers uh, to a great degree. If that happens this year, as far as uh, fat cattle prices go, third and fourth quarter into first quarter next year, I think you can see some serious fireworks.
1: We are seeing Brazil announce they are not going to uh, have beef exports to China. So when you look at that, does that create opportunity for U.S. beef exports into China
2: It should. I mean, indeed, if this is a case that uh, is going to be reflective of the situation, Brazil countries will have at least a six-month waiting period to make sure that they're BSE-free. You know, Brazil exports about 3 million metric tons of beef a year. That's twice of what we do in the United States. So if even a portion of that demand comes our way, we're we're not in a position supply-wise to handle that, to Matt's point. So as I think about it, it's another bullish uh, uh, feather in our hat, if you will. We've got to see if the export demand shows up. Of course, U.S. political uh, relations with China are not the best today, but I do think that we'll see some uh, carry through demand from a Brazilian shortfall, if you will, on BSE or zoological problems, and we'll see how that all transpires. But boy, the cattle market is just really setting up to be something special in terms of upside potential as we look towards the
0: end of this year.
1: Next, we will actually have stories from the front lines with Howard G. Buffett That conversation is right after the break.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Duracade Viptera.
1: Well, the war in Ukraine is now starting its second year for the farmers living there. What was once considered the breadbasket of Europe is now a dangerous land of uncertainty. Farm Journal President Charlene Fink recently sat down with global philanthropist and Illinois farmer Howard Buffett. His namesake foundation has given millions of dollars to projects in the Ukraine to help farmers and civilian families there. He's traveled to Ukraine five times this past year, and as he shares, the impact of the war stretches way beyond the Ukrainian border. Clinton Griffiths has that story.
9: The images of war buried in the lives of its people. These are the photographs Howard G. Buffett took during five
5: recent trips to Ukraine. I saw this um, hole in the wall. It's on the second floor of the school. The hole is made by a Russian missile that did not explode. The HGB Foundation has been working in the country since
9: the war started, helping to feed people, financing food boxes, providing seeds for summer gardens, even buying replacement combines for those stolen or
5: destroyed in the war. We were able to get 50 combines into Ukraine in about 30 days. The kind of fun part of the story is, almost all of them were originally destined for Russia.
9: The gift, ultimately supporting the harvest of more than 70,000 acres last season. Ukrainian grain eventually sold and shipped to countries around the world, including some of the world's most food insecure populations. In 2022, the World Food Program calculated nearly 350 million people across 80 countries were acutely food insecure. The war in Ukraine is a
5: significant contributor to the surge in hunger and conflict. There's more conflict in Africa today than there has been for 20 years. And some of that is outright conflict and some of that is is smaller and regional. But when you don't feed people... When they can't find food, when they can't feed their family, um, that just breeds conflict. A negotiated grain corridor has helped to send some of Ukraine's
9: production abroad. As a U.S. farmer himself, Buffett says he doesn't consider that grain competition.
5: Some farmers are always sitting at home thinking, well, they're a competitor. And that's natural. I get it. I mean, But you know, if you want to think that way, that means your neighbor's your competitor. And you don't don't treat your neighbor like he's your competitor, you treat your neighbor like they're your neighbor. It's not a head-to-head competition. And so I think helping Ukraine is helping the world. As he prepares to double his donation in
9: 2023, expecting to spend upwards of $300 million in Ukraine on infrastructure, food, and equipment, he believes this is ultimately a war on agriculture
5: if farmers here understood what has happened to farmers in ukraine it just it, it, it's just hard to fathom all the landmines on all the agricultural areas all the grain that's been stolen from ukraine the infrastructure which is significant that's been damaged the 80-some-thousand pieces of farm equipment that have been destroyed, and it's not stopping, and it won't stop until Russia stops. As the battle rages into its second year, and this is a mass grave site of 451 bodies, its full
9: impact is yet to be uncovered, both at home and abroad. For U.S. Farm Report, I'm Clinton Griffiths.
1: Thanks, Clinton. And next week on Ag Day, Clinton is continuing this coverage, showing you more of the impact of farmers in Ukraine. Again, you can find that on Ag Day next week. All right, when we come back, the future of young farmers.
4: Where are the young farmers?
1: Well, the statistics of the average age of the U.S. Farmers today is widely advertised. But is there a shortage of young farmers? That's the topic of customer support this week.
4: Today we have a question that seems to be an abiding worry for many. Many of the segments we see on your show that interview people or pan across the audience do not seem to be as youthful looking as you would see when looking at cross-sections of workers in other industries. I'm afraid that there will come a time when there will be too much land and not enough people to work it. Am I worrying about nothing? And that's from David Sick in Smithfield, Missouri. Uh, David, the short answer is there's very little to worry about on that score. I've answered this question many times in many different forms over the years, but I can not understand how it can be a recurring concern. I hope some brief facts can help. Farmers are selected by access to land, period. That means the right parents or very good luck. The next generation of farmers is often unseen since they are not on the farm yet, or maybe they don't like go to meetings, but they are working another job until there's room for them to join the family farm. Farm organizations are traditionally seniority-based, so pictures of farm leaders are like the leaders of any other industry, people in at least mid-career, which adds an additional dimension. The older generation may not be ready or financially able to step aside. And with the self-employed businesses, there is no mandatory company retirement age. Farmers are like investment managers. If you won the lottery, would you be most likely to trust that wealth to an advisor that you went to school with and knew well, or someone just out of college? Success in renting ground is likewise, likewise begins with trust, which is a product of shared history. Since farmland is overwhelmingly owned by older local people, it is natural for them to trust it to people they have known for some time. Any family connection obviously overrides talent as well. It is mathematically improbable to borrow enough money to to buy land and rolling capital as well as generate any income. Even with off-farm incomes, it's unlikely. As medical science and better lifestyle choices extend active working lives, opportunities are fewer and competition is intense. All this underlines farming is far less about hard physical work, than hard assets, so the young muscle and energy advantage has faded. The bottom line is farming is a great job that many people want to enjoy, but many people also want to be successful lawyers, salespeople, and artists. Desire is not sufficient to ensure such a career, but like farmland, of which I have probably spoken too often, the supply of aspiring farmers is more than ample for the foreseeable future.
1: Thanks, John. Well, there are some startling statistics when it comes to grain bin entrapments, but one company is putting the focus on not only educating farmers, but helping supply fire and rescue departments with the tools that they need. That's from The Farm, next. Well, grain bins are dotted all along farm country. But did you know that over the past 50 years, there have been 900 cases of grain bin engulfments reported? That's why Nationwide and supporting partners hold Grain Bin Safety Week each year, hoping with enough discussion, the number of grain bin entrapments continues to decline. In 2014, Nationwide launched Grain Bin Safety Week, held the third week of February each year. It's an effort to deploy the tools, training, and resources to not only help prevent grain bin entrapments, but also with essential rescues. In 2019 alone, there were 29 different entrapments that resulted in 11 fatalities, and it's estimated about 30% of grain bin entrapments are never reported. Seeing the need, Nationwide introduced a program to help award grain bin rescue tubes to fire departments across the country, which also includes the necessary hands-on training, which can be costly.
2: Most of these tubes run anywhere between three dollars and $5,000, and the training itself, if you got it on the open market, <clears throat> would be somewhere in that same range. So you're looking at a six dollars to $8,000 investment that a fire department would have to make. So we've, we've actually supplied over a million dollars worth of resources and training over this 10 year period. And
4: we just look to expand this even more.
1: If you know of a local fire and rescue department in need of a green bin rescue tube, you can nominate that fire department today. Nominations are open through April 30th and nationwide hopes to award 50 tubes and training this year alone. Just go to GreenBinSafetyWeek.com for the rules as well as instructions on how to enter and we'll make sure to have a link on our website for you to share with local fire departments if they would like to apply. All right, that's all the time we have this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.